I'm wearing new contacts. I just had my prescription changed after six years. You ever wait that long? Then you get new lenses. You're like, man, I could have been seeing things. How can instantly improved vision not be at the top of your to-do list? I'll see tomorrow. I don't, I don't have time. I don't have time to see clearly. No, I don't. I don't. No, I can't do that. You see what's on my desk? It's weird in the eye exam room. It's just him and me. He shines his goofy light into my eyes for about an eternity. Can you back up a tad? Are you looking at my soul? Uh, with apologies to Alan Verm and to any of you else in the ophthalmological world. Uh, it was seventh grade, and I don't remember what led to the discovery, but clearly there was a point at which uh, we found out I just couldn't make stuff out. Um, maybe it was the fact that I was running into glass doors or um, addressing my friends by the wrong name because I couldn't pick them out or because I was squinting. I don't know what it was, but at some point uh, we discovered I was in need of corrective lenses. And, and so we got them. And, and if any of you have remember that moment in which you first put on a pair of corrective lenses, um, you remember the world appearing with a vividness and a wonder that had been lost for so long because you'd been squinting and just missing all of it. You, you marveled at what you could now see with a, with a whole new level of brilliance. And yet, at the same time that you were aware of your world in a way that you hadn't in so long, you were also now accountable Right Now that I had the glasses on me, I could no longer say, I can't make it out, right? Um, everything that I saw, I was responsible for. That's what it means to kind of see with new eyes, not just with greater clarity, but also with greater responsibility. This morning, we're looking at a passage in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been listening to Mark's Gospel for now several months, in which something odd will happen in the midst of Jesus performing one of his miracles, which you know, feels so commonplace to hear talk about Jesus performing miracles. This one, there's a moment in which you think, maybe he's just tired because he was, he's going to, he's going to, blind man's going to be brought out to him and he's going to spit on the ground and apply some of that to this man's eyes and, and he's going to say, hey, what do you see? And, he, and he's going to be like, I see, it's like ants walking, not ants, but ants. J.R.R. Tolkien's 130th birthday this year. You should know what an ant is by now. And then so he does it again. He, he, he puts his hands to the man's eyes and then asks him, what do you see? And he goes, now I see clearly. And we think, was Jesus kind of having an off day? Or was there something else in place? There was. This was a lived parable moment. This was a metaphor for something that Jesus was trying to get across to those who were in earshot or eyeshot and to all of us. That there are some things that we think we see plainly that we are instead in need of great assistance to see clearly. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning are going to be three instances in which he is out to clear up what we think we see but which we really don't. He is there to remove the scales from our eyes, to see things clearly and at the same time be responsible for them. Three things. One is person. Two is purpose. And three his calling to us. We want to understand and see more clearly his person, his purpose, and then how that translates into how we see our calling. We're in Mark chapter 8. 
We'll start in verse 22. I wonder if you might stand as we read. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Don't even enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may, you may sit. So we're then Bethsaida. It's on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. And they start heading north up to Caesarea Philippi. It's a, it's a due north shot. And uh, just like it was on your Boy Scout trips or your Girl Scout trips, uh, you make the distance go a little, takes a little less time when you start talking. Let's talk. Let's bring up a, a matter of conversation. And so... Uh, Jesus in the middle of that just sort of says to his disciples, so tell me, what's the scuttlebutt out there? Who are people coming to the conclusion or the preliminary deduction that I am? And the disciples do what all of us do. We make associations. They, 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 they observe and they're talking about how people have viewed Jesus through a certain lens. And, and just like we all do, we, we find similarities between who this one is and with things that we are already familiar. And so we start to categorize. And, and you're going to hear a lot of that both in this passage this week and, and in the passage next week. And in the course of those associations, they say, well, um, maybe you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. Could be that. You sound a lot like him. Or maybe you're Elijah, uh, the one who did any number of things that we might fall and being wonderful, or maybe you're just like one of the prophets. And that's kind of where the world is right then. They've, they've seen enough, they've heard enough to make those associations. And then Jesus says, all right, interesting, thank you. Now, tell me, who do you say that I am? Uh, 
for him to ask that question, uh, it's not so much he's doing a little trivia test here. So, who do you say that I am? He's trying to gauge their sense of who he is. He's trying to gauge their sense of his, their value of him. Do they really grasp his essence? When, when my wife and I were dating, after several months of that, she, she finally kind of said in as many words, you know, um, you've said a lot of things, but where's this going? You know, in, in so many words, not that she had a savior complex, who do you say that I am, right? Um, what is my, yeah, whatever. Um, what is my value to you? What's that? You've just said a lot of things that I've heard, you know, any number of people, any number of men on the Gulf Coast that I've dated before. Um, what's that all about? Jesus is putting this question to them, not simply to do a quiz, but to really gauge their sense of their understanding and their, in his value, their value of him. And up walks Peter, Phi Beta Kappa of his rabbi class. You're the Christ. You're him. You're the one we've been waiting for. And so in this moment, Jesus is first of all trying to improve all of his disciples' view of him, that he is both like but more than a prophet. He is like and yet more than John the Baptist. He is like, and here's the big one, he is like and yet more than Elijah ever was. He is there to improve their vision of who he is, of his person. And Peter has already at some level passed the test. He has said, you're him. Now, if you've been reading along with us, and if you remember the first moment in which Jesus asks the disciples first to follow him, we have very little data from which to understand why the disciples said to themselves in so many words, I'm in. I don't know really the fullness of who you are, but I, I, can't, I can't stay where I am. I can't keep doing what I got to do. I, I got to go with you. I'm in. And in that moment, we're, we're really not sure what their preliminary sense of it, but Jesus in this moment is trying to put on even greater corrective lenses for them. You have seen me, you have respected me enough to follow me, but now I need you to see me with greater clarity. And therefore, I am here to, to draw out of you, and Peter has passed the test, that I am both like and more than a prophet, a priest, and a king. And Peter's hot take is, is proof positive that something is getting through, at least to him. They all needed a corrective lens, and Peter is demonstrating that he was. And I say that to you to ask ourselves this question, so what? Why do you and I need to have the clearest sense possible of who he is on his terms according to the nature of who he is? Because everybody in this world who has any knowledge of Jesus makes some kind of association with him. Many will refer to him as a religious figure, sort of the, you know, the overall generic respectful term. Others will refer to him as a, a revolutionary. He's come to stir things up and turn things over and you know, turn over tables and reorient people's thinking. Some people will call him a liberator. Some people will call him a philosopher king, a, a, a one to just sort of overturn the world. And all of those things, they capture a part of who he is, not the whole. Not the whole of what Peter means when he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. You're the one that was foretold. You're the one who's come to usher in a new world, and it's come by you under your leadership. And where Jesus is trying to improve their vision, he's also trying to improve our vision, because this is what we all have to see if we're to see him clearly. Only those who see him clearly 
are those who realize that they are responsible to him in some way. That if we just understand him to be one who speaks wisdom, well, that's interesting. If we understand him to be the one that does a miracle, miracle, miraculous works, we go, that is even more interesting. What do I do with that? But until we see him as one to whom we're responsible, we really don't get him. He is out to open the eyes of our heart because anything less than that, we will hear everything that he has to say is not binding. Interesting, worthy of consideration, but nothing more of that. We have to see him as one who has authority. And that's what Peter gets when he says, you're the Christ. Now, again, all of that sounds very much like what you'd expect to hear in a sermon among people who identify with Jesus. What difference does it make in a very real-world scenario? Let me apply that idea to a very modern question. And I don't think it's lost on any of us. I don't think any of you disagree that um, uh, the question on most people's mind is not, who is Jesus really? The question on most people's mind or more people's mind in this world is, who am I? Not Patrick, but who, who am I? Who, are, who am I? Forging that identity. Kids, uh, not to single you out because adults do this too, but there's all sorts of questions about in your head that maybe you've never asked the question, so, you know, it sounds so existential, who am I? Maybe you've never put it in those terms, but look, you are seeing stuff online and there are, it seems like, innumerable possibilities for how your world and you might think of yourself, how you might identify yourself. All of these possibilities on offer. You're asking the question without even saying the words, who am I? Now, nothing wrong with asking that question, Right? You put a baby, in a newborn baby, in the mother's arms, you know within nanoseconds the mother and the father are thinking to themselves, oh, I wonder what they'll grow up to be. Who will they be when they have left my home or when they do whatever it might be? That's, those questions of identity are impossible to avoid, and that's fine. It's a question we all have to ask. But here's the thing. Where modern culture contributes to the conversation about that question what you will hear quite often is this when it comes to questions of how you think of yourself. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. You must think for yourself about who you are. And, and look, there's a part of us that we, we respect the, the intention behind that idea, that we, we all really do have a certain kind of responsibility and, and involvement in trying to understand who we are, but everybody is saying to us these days, don't let anybody tell you who you are. You must think for yourself about that. And as interesting and as evocative and as interesting as that might be, here's the question. What if, what if none of us really thinks for ourselves? What if, in fact, that is a, an idea that's been planted that actually doesn't have any grounding in reality? Now, I've, I've called out to you before um, an author named Alan Jacobs. He's a teacher of literature at Baylor. He wrote a book several years ago that I've mentioned on a number of occasions with a number of you. It's a book called How to Think. And he talks about this idea of independent thinking. Does anybody really think independently? And he, and he says this somewhere in the book. He says, to think independently of other human beings is impossible. And if it were possible, it would be undesirable. Thinking is necessarily thoroughly and wonderfully social. Everything you think is a response to what someone else has thought and said. And when people commend someone for thinking for herself, they usually mean ceasing to sound like people I dislike and starting to sound more like people I approve of. 
tell me he's wrong. We just sort of maybe distance ourselves from others who might have had a particular contribution to our understanding of ourselves, and instead we identify with others, and they're the ones that remind us of who we are. We get their recognition. We start to feel a certain solidarity with them, and what does that do? It helps us remind us who we are. If thinking is inevitably and helpfully social, then the question about who am I is also inevitably and helpfully social. Why why have I gone off on what feels like a tangent here? If Jesus is the Christ, if he has an authority like no one has an authority, if he is more than a prophet, more than a priest, more than a king, then he might have actually something to contribute to your conversation about who you are. He does speak to that. And those who will admit him as one having authority will give him that authority to speak into the question about who am I? And somehow he qualifies himself as one uniquely suited to speak into that question. Do you take note as you read about his life how he refers to and deals with those who are last and least on the margins? Do you ever consider and take special note about how he deals with those who are sinful, for those who are broken? Do you ever notice how he speaks rather fiercely to those who are so entrenched in their folly that they won't see it themselves? In every way, if you will study his life, he speaks in a way and involves himself in a way that gives him the right to start saying unto you, this is who you are. He contributes to that sense of our identity that we need the dignity that we try to find in everything else, he will say unto you, you are made in his image. He is out to improve our sight. And he's out to improve our sight in any number of ways that all are downstream of believing that he is the Christ, one that is more than a prophet and a priest and a king. But that is an idea that we have to have our sight improved upon. And not just about his person, but also about his purpose. That's the second thing I think he's out to improve our sight on. Now, when it comes to healing, for those of you in the medical world, you will nod your head up and down when when we realize that sometimes healing can only come through a certain painful experience. Um, I've seen it happen once, but I've seen a doctor reset somebody's dislocated bone. And if you've ever been in the presence of that happening, you know that the first thing out of that person's mouth is not, oh, this is wonderful. There's a scream, if not language not suitable for children. There's pain in the resetting of the dislocated bone. But there's healing in that. There's, there's realignment in that. And, and in this moment, there is something like that, and it happens in the world of Peter. Um, there again, walking along, And it says that Jesus sort of turns their attention away from just his person, but to something else. He begins to teach them. He pivots to an entirely different theme that he has not brought up to this point in their understanding of him. And it says there in verse 31, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And they're like, that's new. How, how sobering. What is he talking about? And there's this wonderful little tag that Mark kicks in there at the end of Jesus sort of dropping the bomb with that entrance. In verse 32, it says this, and he said this plainly. 
no parable this time, no head-scratching, you know, kind of riddle that they're supposed to contend with. He just said it straight up. He laid his cards on the table. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die at the hands of everybody that seems to want to come and have a conversation with him, but seems to have an agenda behind it. That's where it's headed. That's what's going to happen. And in that moment, he is out to heal their vision of who he is, and that healing will be painful. Um, A year after I got my glasses, my mom got real sick. And I can remember quite vividly having the doctor come over and sit down and explain to me that she would not improve. I remember sitting on the black and white houndstooth couch, and many of you have had a moment like that in different ways. And we can respond in any number of ways. Uh, We can fly into a rage. Uh, We can want to flee the room. Or we can just sort of say inside over and over again, this is not supposed to be happening. Peter is having a moment like that after Jesus rattles off kind of what his destiny is. Uh, You might say he flies off the handle. Uh, He he goes into a rage, he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. Imagine, (laughs) Imagine saying to your mentor, or however you might want to characterize the person who has the most influence in your life, imagine coming at them and rebuking them. Whatever he's feeling in that moment, uh, Peter is in effect saying, this is not supposed to be happening. And he flies off, and he rebukes Jesus, and the only thing more shocking about Peter saying that to Jesus is what Jesus says in reply, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not according to the ways of God, but according to the ways of man. Um, it's possible that, I wonder if you were to, if you, were to you know, step back into your memory banks uh, of a mentor that you have, what's, a, what's the fiercest word a mentor has ever said to you? Something that jarred you, something that you needed to hear in the moment, but you would have never thought they would have said that to you. It was shocking to hear it in real time. Maybe you have a moment like that. We all have moments like that. That's the moment that Peter is having, and it feels like a bone that has been dislocated is being reset. Why why is Peter going like that? Why why does Jesus respond like that? Well, fast forward, Gethsemane, you know, the whole part about Jesus sweating drops of blood. And what does Jesus pray right there on the cusp of entering into his suffering, which was already had begun he says, if there's any other way, do you have a plan B? Could this cup that you have for me, could it, could it pass? Could, could something else happen? And eventually he, right on the cusp of that, says, I, I, your will be done. In that moment in which he was trying to entertain another possibility, here's Peter, moments, hours, if not days earlier, kind of whispering the same. Hey man, you've done enough already. You've done plenty. You don't need to do this. And that sounds very much like what was tempting Jesus in the moment in Gethsemane. What Jesus is out to clarify for them, what Jesus is out to clarify for us at every step, is that Jesus was not simply a casualty of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a co-conspirator in his own destruction. 
Why do we need to reckon with that? I mean, I, again, if, you, if you've been here or you've grown up in the church or whatever, you, and, or you just grew up in the culture, you, you know that that was, that was his destiny. But why does that matter? Um, I, I want to set up the answer to that question in a kind of a, a funky way. Um, Harvey Dent, assistant district attorney for Gotham City. I'm talking about Batman, right? Harvey Dent, uh, a law-abiding, courageous, uh, justice-filled person, and uh, he does that with great verve and, and courage, and yet uh, a great tragedy befalls him, and he loses himself in it, and he is swallowed by his anger, and in being swallowed by his anger, he ends up uh, c- contributing to the deaths of many and uh, Batman and Commissioner Gordon are coming to terms with what Harvey Dent has done, and, and they know that the, the city is already on edge for any number of reasons, but if they hear that their assistant district attorney has gone crazy like that and has led to the death of many, the, the, the city will erupt and implode. So what's the solution? Batman says, tell them I did it. Tell that I'm the one that's responsible for their deaths. And... Here's a 90-second summary of what drives him and what will happen. Whatever Gotham needs me to be. Call it in. A hero. Not the hero we deserved, but the hero we needed. Nothing less than a knight. Shining. I'll hunt you. You'll hunt me. You'll condemn me. Set the dogs on me. Because that's what needs to happen. Because sometimes, sometimes people deserve more. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. Why is he running, Dad? Because we have to chase him. Okay, we're going in! Go, go! Move! He didn't do anything wrong. Because he's the hero Gotham deserves. But not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him. Because he can take it. He's a silent guardian. A watchful protector. I don't think Christopher Nolan had a clue that he was preaching the gospel at the end of that movie. (laughs) But one who willingly and lovingly takes on the crimes of another in order to rescue a people from itself. Beloved, that's the gospel. The reason why we need to come to terms with the purpose that Jesus set of taking upon himself our error, our sin, that he might be hunted and condemned. I'll give you three quick reasons. One, because only when we see that purpose with greater clarity do we understand just how desperate our situation is. If all we needed was instruction and a weekend retreat to offer us some guidance on what we would need to optimize our life, to hack our life, Jesus could have just taught the rest of his life and gone on the lecture circuit. If all we needed was advice or just a few wise words, you know, 
well-placed, um, articulately put, then that's what he would have done. Beloved, we needed more than advice, to borrow a phrase. We needed rescue. We needed someone to intervene. We needed someone to offer us what we cannot obtain for ourselves, like forgiveness. We needed someone to offer us the reconciliation with the very heart of the world, the heart of the universe, namely the one who made it. We needed that. We didn't need a sermon. We needed rescue. And until we see him in that purpose, we will not ever come to terms with just the depth of our problem. We will keep trying to fix it and educate it and illuminate it. We needed more. And he offered that. And the second reason we need to do it, the second reason we need to to grapple with his purpose, to see that he did so not just out of necessity, but out of willingness. Beloved, it's only that we might believe that we are beloved, that we might actually rest in the fact that there is a love stronger than death. That's why we need to see his purpose with clarity. He did so not begrudgingly, but willingly and kindly and to a degree none of us ever could or ever have. And when we see that, we might just be able to rest in the possibility that if we have ruined our lives, there is still a love outstretched with him, with his eyes, in what he's done at cost to himself. And in that, there's a short third reason why we need to grapple with his purpose. And I get a little help from Martin Luther in this one. In America, there's a great effort to portray everything as Disney World. That it's all just beautiful and wondrous and full of fireworks. And that's great. It's fine. It's wonderful to get away like that. But you know it, everything in Disney World is an intended illusion, right? I mean, the way it's all set up is to create an impression that isn't true. That's the world we're in. Martin Luther would have us all remind ourselves of this. The cross, the cross is more than just a historical moment. It is a lens through which we have to see everything, ourselves, the world, the whole kit and caboodle. And by that, I mean this. Inasmuch as the world tries to tell you that it's all wine and roses most of the time, and if you'll just get that, that's the world that you deserve, that's the world that is, and we've all got to find it. Instead, if you'll just realize this world is full of sorrow. Oh, there are winds, to be sure. All of us can tell it. We have many of those things that are hanging on our walls, but you and I both know it's full of losses, it's full of sorrows, it's full of goodbyes. And therefore, to see the world and all things in it through the lens of the cross is to remind us of this. God knows it. He knows it's a mess. And he's entered into it in order for us to continue to fight in it. Now look, it's not Disney World, but it is Middle Earth, and I'll put it this way. Galadriel, in, in, in The Fellowship of the Ring, she tells Frodo something about herself and about her husband, Celeborn. She's one of the elves. And she says this, He has dwelt in the West since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted. And together, through ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. That's a potent phrase, and Tolkien did it on purpose. How shall I put this without you sort of wanting to crawl into the fetal position? You and I are all fighting the long defeat. 
The world we are in is so full of sorrows and we will say goodbye to everybody that we love. But that does not mean that we do not fight in it. It does not mean that we do not seek to live with hope in it. It just means that we believe that the Lord knows, I know it's a mess and that's why I've entered into it. And insofar as we will see that world through the lens of that cross, it will protect us from this sort of Disney world, Disneyfication of our souls that promises so much and delivers so little. That's why you and I have to grapple with this purpose. And that all explains why we have to listen to this third thing. Not only do we have to have our sight improved about his person and of his purpose, but how that, how that translates into our understanding of our calling to him what it means to follow him, which is obviously what we're doing this entire series. What does it mean to follow him? It, to answer that question, we just have to ask one more time, why, why was Peter so angry? Why was Peter so brash? Why was Peter so brazen as to rebuke his Lord? Was it out of love? He didn't want to see his, his dear mentor suffering? Uh, who could deny that, right? I, I think it was something more so, though. If it was true that they were coming for him, then he knows how long it would be before they'd be coming for Peter. If, if, if there's a target already on Jesus' back, well, that just means that the crosshairs are on their way finding all those that have been in his remit. He has come to the conclusion that if it's coming for Jesus, then he's coming for us. And so what they've all learned about following him so far is that they've got to you know, you know, drop your nets and, and leave behind what you know and, and learn from me about this kingdom and, and then you know, watch me get it, you know, take flack from everybody that has an issue with me and, and go tell them that the kingdom is coming. So far, that's their vision of what it means to follow him. But here he is out to say, you know what? It's a little bit more. It's more than what you might imagine. To follow him is this, verse 34 and 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I had a, I had a counselor friend that, that asks anybody that she counsels uh, a question, if they're familiar with the Bible, she, she asks them, um, what is that verse in scripture you wish weren't there that most intimidates you? Um, a lot of people, maybe myself included, would put that one because it sounds like a bar that's so high. It sounds like it asks so much. And, and it's not to sugarcoat it. Obviously, when Jesus says, follow me, this will be part of it. That it will mean you have to set aside the greatest concern for yourself, which feels so natural. You will have to set that aside. And this idea of taking up your cross, we've, we've kind of enlarged the meaning of that. You know, bearing your cross these days is just sort of, this is my trouble. This is my affliction. It, it, it's something far more specific here. It means being willing to be shamed for your identification with him. That's taking up your cross. He took up his cross to be cursed. For you to take up your cross is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable before eyes of others that you are willing to be shamed for your identification with him. That all sounds way up there, higher than the balcony. But if you'll just take a step back and, and realize, as you ask yourselves this question, who have you ever loved that didn't require that you set aside your own concerns in order to love them? No one. You, by definition, what love is means 
I am not as important. You must increase. I must decrease. I must concern myself with your um, uh, issues as much as my own, if not more so. That's love. That's what we do. That's called setting aside. That's self-denial. It's not this, you know, really rigid, hard thing. It's like we're already familiar with it. We already do it. And in the same token, how many of us who have ever loved somebody have ever been in a moment where, you know, they get ridiculed and you're associated with them and they know that you're associated with them and what do you have to do? You have to be willing to say, you know, call them what you will. I love them. And, and throw me under the bus if you will. I, I love them. What Jesus is saying there in verses 34 and 35 is just love in other words. It's the nature of what it means to follow him, and he, and he does so by, by putting that idea in the perspective of all things. He says in verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in a return for his soul? He, he's asking everybody to do a little cost-benefit analysis. What is your wife worth? We as Christians, we, we will from time to time say, I want to be public i don't want to be offend i don't want to be offensive and on its face there's wisdom to that and there's that's a principle by which to abide and yet to offend someone means that you are absolutely have no interest in their dignity and and you have no impulse for them to show them charity that's if if those two things are not in your purview their dignity and acting with charity then you're right you will be offensive and yet Sometimes we confuse that with just not wanting to say anything that's unpopular. Not wanting to step out for what is just when the world will look at you funny if not shout you down. Speaking up for where you come from and whom you identify with, even if it costs you, that's, that's taking up your cross. Mark Helperin wrote a series of short stories. One of them was called Vanderveer's house. It's about a man, self-made man, brilliant man, um, ended up marrying the woman the first time he saw her. And um, he's impeccably dressed, he's impeccably organized, he's impeccably disciplined, and absolutely wealthy. Um, and he designs everything that he does. He's, he's not only a, a brilliant person, he designed this whole mansion, and the mansion was complete with everything. All of the appliances, you could, you could move out so you could clean behind them. He, he developed a plumbing system made of copper such that you would never hear water going through the pipes. Some of you who are plumbers go, that's impossible. It's just the nature of his being. He had everything so meticulously attended to. And at the very last scene of the short story, he's sitting outside admiring his finely manicured garden. He's finally manicured um, uh, grass, and all of a sudden he, he smells smoke. And he turns around and his mansion's on fire. And you and me, our first impulse would be, call 911, get the water. But in the last scene of that short story, he says this, the heat was such that even the porcelain might melt. He felt this heat, but he did not move, nor did he want to move, even as all he had built and worked for over so many years vanished before him at great speed. For he'd already left it behind, and his spirit had been unlocked, and his soul freed in a gift that had come on the wind. Something had to happen inside of him that he might let the mansion of his own self burn to let something else be of greater value than to him than all the things that he had spent his life trying to create. 
this world in which he had tried to gain the whole world, he realized he was forfeiting his own soul at the expense. And in this moment, what it took was for that mansion to burn and something else to happen inside of him before he would realize there's something of greater value than everything I might build. How did that happen? It was no choice. Something happened from within. Beloved, what must happen into us before we can ever want to deny ourselves and take up our cross? It won't simply be by Jesus' command. It will be by seeing him in his own denial of self and his own willingness to take up his cross and believing that that was for you. And when you see that, the self-denial, the making yourself vulnerable, it, it doesn't seem as such a high bar as it once did. It actually seems like an act of love. There's a seminary in California who had several Ethiopian students, Egyptian students, excuse me. And you may remember from a few years ago that ISIS attacked Egyptian Coptic churches in Egypt and, and many died. And I read this yesterday. After ISIS launched a series of deadly attacks against Egyptian Christians, there were some Americans at the seminary who wanted to hold a memorial service. But the Egyptian student said, in effect, what are you talking about? This is a cause for celebration. This is about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in a context in which you have the privilege of martyrdom. This idea is foreign to most American Christians. But the Egyptians led a celebratory service which was followed by communion in the form of a Japanese tea ceremony. What have we missed that we might worship like the Egyptians do? rather than simply be somber at the loss of life. Something must happen within. And that is something that Jesus does by giving us sight to see him, by giving us sight to see his purpose, all of which redounds to what it means to walk in his way. This is what it means to see him as he is. And with his help, by his spirit, for what he's done in the community of people to remind us what it means it's what it means to walk in his way. It's what it means to follow. Let's pray. What does this mean for us today, sir? What does it mean to follow you in this way? I know you don't want us to go out and pick a fight. I know you don't want us to go out and try to prove something to you that's not what you mean. But you do mean to convince us of something that your love for us is real and that there is a love that's stronger than death. And in that, we find our hope. Oh, help us to see, not just in this moment, but in the days to come. Help us by your Spirit to see as we should. We see through a mirror dimly, but then we shall see you face to face. And then we shall know you, even as we're fully known. Help us, sir, to hope and to see in Jesus' name. Amen.